Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So for this week's episode, I spent some time catching up with Sarah Kyes, who is in the middle of her first season running for the North Face and recently qualified for the U.S. long distance team with a podium finish at this year's Lake Sonoma 50 just a few weeks ago. Sarah and I hit a few topics back and forth, including the perceived edge living and training in the Adirondacks gives her and some thoughts on trail running's West Coast bias. Then we wrap up the show, building some excitement about the World Mountain Running Championship in Innsbruck, Austria next month. And Sarah takes me through some recent misadventures in her kitchen. But before I bring her on, I want to take a quick minute to tell you guys about Blister's partnership with Spot Insurance. Injuries are definitely not the first thing that comes to mind when we think about our favorite outdoor sports. But as many of you know, perhaps all too well in some cases, they happen from time to time. And even if you have standard insurance, the cost of your deductible and often a number of hidden fees means you're likely to get stuck with quite a hefty bill for any trip to the ER or hospital visit. That's where Spot comes in. With a Blister Plus Spot membership, you get injury insurance that covers everything from trail running to backcountry skiing to mountain biking and more. All that in addition to the benefits of being a Blister member. For more info, make sure to click on the link in the show notes. All right. And finally, I also want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or a view after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. All right. So before we kind of hop into our conversation, we're recording this during, I think, like technically day two of Cocodona 250. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been following what's going on? Uh, a little bit. I uh, Eliza Lapierre is a friend of mine and she's currently leading for the ladies last I saw. So I'm really, really excited for her. She's... Um, it's well-deserved. She puts in so much work like under the radar. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any interest in doing like a 200 plus mile race? No, yeah. <laughs> no. But I think if you had asked Eliza that same question, probably last year, she would have said the same thing. So <laughs> what do you think like changes about, about people's like desire to do that race? Like, why is it alluring? I think it's, I guess it's probably like, I like to think of this as like the frontier, right? Like um, there's always something just beyond that you don't know if you can accomplish or not. And just like settlers back in the day when they're like, I don't know, there's something over that hillside. Should we go find out? (laughs) Uh, I think those really long ultras are in that same vein. But I also think to transfer just from like a road marathon to like a 50K ultra is kind of in the same uh, mindset as well for a lot of people. Right. It's just like degree of magnitude. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. To take like mini micro breaks from work, I've been like checking out the live stream, which is super well done. They've got mm-hmm. like a bunch of drones this year and stuff. Cool. Uh, but it's like, you know, I appreciate it, but it's not, it's not the most kind of like stimulating thing to watch. Like I tuned in just before recording and like I saw some guy like eating a hamburger and I was like, cool. <laughs> like, this is rad. <laughs> it's real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right i, I, I was gonna say i hope they're showing some of the like you know nobody talks about like how horrible you feel after finishing just like a hundred mile race you know like totally. it's those stories about people laying in the center of the track at, in auburn like that nobody talks about that part totally there's <laughs> a, a, a great picture of uh corinne malcolm that i'm gonna try and get from her uh, at some point of her just like yeah laying supine on on the western states track <laughs> with like the best kind of like dirt sock line, you know, like her legs yep. are just like completely like black and filthy. And then like her feet are, are gleaming white, um, which is always really funny to see. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I have been circling you for a while now. Uh, you're one of my really good friends, new teammates, which we'll get into. Um, but since it's your first time on the show, I thought we could kind of do a little bit of background work. Um, can you give me kind of like a brief or long overview of uh, how you got into mountain ultra running? Yeah. So I live in uh, the Adirondacks of New York. Um, I'm about an hour from Canada and like an hour from Vermont. So I'm like way far up in that 
corner. Um, the Adirondacks are a six billion acre park, which is kind of like living inside of a national park where you can own property, but you still have restrictions on what you can do with your own land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I grew up here. Uh, I spent a lot of time as a kid outdoors, like canoeing, camping, um, where I grew up in Paul Smith's, like we didn't have cable line run to our house until I was in like middle school, probably like, uh, we had an antenna that got hit by lightning twice, you know, on the roof, that type of thing. Um, so most of our free time we spent outdoors. Um, and I really wasn't, I wouldn't have considered myself a competitive child. You know, I didn't really do many sports. I played softball for a while, you know, like in the summer. And um, I wouldn't have considered myself an athlete by any means. You know, I was much more like I played the trumpet in band and I um, was like president of the art club, you know, things like that. Um, and then I did an AmeriCorps program right out of high school. Uh, and that was if it's a federally funded program, similar to like, it's like a domestic Peace Corps kind of, um, part of that was doing physical fitness and we would run for like 15 minutes, um, at a time, like once a day. <laughs> and then after that, like I kind of learned, so it's a, a program where you travel and work with the same 10 people and I kind of wanted time alone. And so I would go run by myself. Uh, that was kind of my introduction to like running at all. And I was like, Oh, this is great. Um, and when I returned to the Adirondacks, I quickly was like, oh, I can run trails here. And how awesome is that? Like, I get out alone. I like clear my head. I get to like cover so much more ground than just hiking. Um, and I was working at a brew pub actually where some of the ladies and I did a marathon relay. And then uh, the relay, they stopped doing that. So they're like, well, let's just do the half marathon. And so just sort of like snowballed into eventually doing a marathon. And then I was like, oh, well, like we were talking about earlier, how far can I go? Uh, and that's why I started doing ultras. Uh, my first ultra was the Wakely Dam Ultra, which is in the Adirondacks. And that's like a point to point kind of self-supported um, event on the Northville Placid Trail, which is super cool. Uh, it's a very limited entry because here in the Adirondacks, you can't just have as many entrants as you want in wilderness areas. It's limited and you have to get a permit from the DEC. Um, and so that is limited like 75 people. Um, and then, so that was my first ultra, my first mountain race, very similarly is a limited entry race called the great Adirondack trail run. That's put on by the mountaineer in Keene Valley. Uh, and that's a really cool event that again, through the brew pub, actually, they like donate a keg of beer for the after party and they give them an entry and they, somebody was like, do you want the entry this year, Sarah? And I was like, Oh man, I don't know if I can go 11 miles with 3000 feet of gain. Like that seems really hard. Um, and once I finished that, I was like totally hooked at that point, um, hanging out afterward, like sharing war stories over the keg was pretty, pretty sweet. And it's kind of just history from there as far as like con continuing on. Yeah. From that point. And you're still in the Adirondacks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm still in the Adirondacks. I'm in Saranac Lake, which okay. is just outside of Lake Placid. So a lot of folks know Lake Placid as the site of, uh, the 1932 and 1980 Olympics. And we just had uh, the World University Games in Lake Placid uh, this past January as well. So a lot of winter sport history here and a lot of um, actually like Corinne Malcolm and I met here in Lake Placid years ago when she was on the U.S. biathlon team. And so there's always been athletes around me. You know, I grew up in a place like in Paul Smith, Lowell Bailey, Tim Burke are from there, both Olympic biathletes. Uh, so there's they've always kind of been circling around me, but I was never really uh, put into those same worlds. And, um, so it's been very, like, very cool to have them there as inspiration, but, um, I didn't find it until later in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It is cool how like there's seemingly always like an athletic infrastructure that's like left over from areas that have hosted Olympics. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things about like Placid is that as a kid, you can like have ski jumping as your after school sport, right? Like that's pretty amazing. That can, I mean, I guess in Park City, you could do that too or something, right? Cause they have those facilities, but to be able to be like in middle school and like, okay. And like after school, I got to go practice ski jumping. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like what? That's awesome. Yeah. This, this is kind of like, I guess it's somewhat running related, but I was having this conversation with a few friends out on a run. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area and like still live here. And oftentimes people like criticize me for like not moving anywhere. Mm. 
and I just push back inside that every time. And as someone yeah. that seems like you still live close to where you grow up, mm -hmm. uh, what is your like perspective on that? Like, is there a certain like amount of pride you get from kind of staying close to home? Yeah. So I went to high school right here in Saranac Lake, right where I live now. Um, and so now I work as a nurse also. Uh, I work right here at the local hospital. I'm a mile from the hospital where I have to clock in. I leave my house like four minutes before I have to be there. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that is, uh, people have asked me that too. Like as a runner, like why do you choose to live in the Adirondacks and um, the Northeast in general, I think. But, and right, like didn't anywhere else call out to you as the place to go, right? Like you've spent a lot of time here, but you know, there's something really special about the Adirondacks. Um, and it provides me the opportunity to travel and go see other places. You know, I, I do remember after doing AmeriCorps, I drove, I bought a car actually and drove back cross country thinking maybe someplace was going to call out to me as like, this is where you should settle. And uh, nowhere, nowhere has ever um, comparatively to here. And some of that I think is, you know, the community and right. Having grown up here and knowing most people, like it's hard for me to go anywhere and not run into someone that I know. Um, but also I think there's, you know, as an athlete who wants to challenge myself, being in these mountains is challenging. Um, it's familiar, but it's also, um, which can be risky, right. And you get too comfortable someplace, but, um, there's something about them that, uh, you know, I really enjoy that sensation of like, man, this is hard and like makes me gritty and makes me badass to like have to run through six months of winter <laughs> and then totally. like, you know, and then mud season and then like black fly season. And then, <laughs> you know, so, um, I have talked about this before. I think there's something special to like historically when you look at the people that lived here you know and, and settled this area way back in like the 1800s and things that they had to go through um and i think you can still find that type of grit here and the people that choose to live here now too yeah i mean i think looking at our sport in particular it definitely does seem to have like a west coast mountain west bias mm -hmm. um does that kind of like bother you or does it kind of like fuel you I like it. I kind of think that, um, like, I feel like I'm in my little own unknown paradise over here sometimes, <laughs> totally. um, you know, and I think it's becoming more known like Eric LaPuma lives in Vermont, uh, also on the U S national team, long trail team, uh, for this year. And so we've talked a little bit about it, but how I think the Northeast is a perfect training ground for these races, like the upcoming world 86 K or, uh, UTMB races, those sorts of things. Cause we have like incredibly steep, gnarly terrain. Um, and the weather is kind of iffy. And so you have to be pretty resilient and, uh, have that ability to push through different things, which I think, you know, you just gain that through training, but I, it doesn't really bother me that people kind of discount the Northeast. I kind of like it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't want to like blow up your spot or anything, but are there any kind of like <laughs> areas that people should check out if, if they're uh, headed in that direction, particularly for trail running? Sure. I think like if you're coming to the Northeast, like, um, certainly Lake Placid would be the place to stay where there's enough amenities, you know, hotels and restaurants and things like that. Um, and it's definitely sort of the heart of the mountainous high peak region where if you're looking to run mountains, um, that's where you should be. Uh, the great range traverse is like our iconic trail that some people probably have heard of. And in my opinion, I think it's the hardest marked trail in the like United States, to be honest. Um, you know, I've been on a lot of different terrain and certainly there's like unmarked ski or, or scree, like, you know, off trail stuff I've done in like Colorado and like in the Pacific Northwest, but that's not a marked trail. Um, and so, yeah, I challenge anybody who <laughs> wants to come and run the great range with me to come on out. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've mentioned this probably a dozen times now on this show, but I hiked the PCT in 2018 and uh, there's a lot of people that had previously hiked the AT and were going after their triple crown. And all of them were like, dude, this trail is so soft. Like <laughs> compared to the AT, like they're like, this is essentially like 20 miles in the AT is equivalent to like 40 miles in the PCT because the PCT mm. is this like great highway and it's mm. uh, graded for horses. Um, so that's right. like 
totally intimidated me and like every time i go east of the mississippi i'm on the on the lookout yeah i mean um yeah like i didn't even mention like in the green mountains the long trail and then right in the new hampshire up in the whites like there's so much uh, really technical terrain if that's what you want um you can also find tons of like fun flowy mountain bike trails and that sort of stuff too i run a lot of mountain bike trails in this area if i'm looking for more like rolling um terrain that's more sure-footed a lot of times but uh yeah no i that's interesting yeah uh is there anything that kind of like doesn't translate to uh races out west like i've know you i know you've run western states twice Mm -hmm. was training for that race particularly difficult um assuming you were doing it on the east coast I would say the, you know, our lack of altitude is probably the biggest limiting factor. Um, it definitely plays a role. Like that's why I was so psyched that Lake Sonoma was the, um, selecting race for the U S team, because there's, that's an equal playing field for everybody. Um, I, in the past have utilized the sauna, you know, as a way to try, uh, to get acclimated as well as like just traveling, um, to race locations, hopefully with a long enough time, but I find it takes me a really long time to acclimate. Um, I also have a hypoxico system that I've utilized in the past, but yeah. So like without like those, I'm pretty lucky to have those things. Right. So like without that stuff, it's challenging. I think for some people to be able to, um, be able to compete at the level they want to probably out, uh, you know, at those higher altitudes. Yeah. You're also someone that doesn't have like a traditional nine to five. You're a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of fit training around that? And like, what does your kind of weekly schedule look like? Sure. So I work per diem, which means it's an as needed basis, but I am super fortunate that they basically like our schedule is made a month in advance uh, for the hospital. And she'll just, my, uh, the woman who does the scheduling, uh, just sends me dates that they need extra help and I can say I can work or not. Um, and it's really lovely, actually. Like, I feel very fortunate to be able to have that liberty to do that. Um, I also coach some athletes remotely. And then I also work at a running store one day a week. <laughs> um, and I guess that's it. And then I'm an athlete myself. So there's a lot, I do a lot of different things. But um, yeah, I don't know that I could ever work a nine to five job at this point. I never really have. Um, for a little bit, I did some environmental education and that was like a nine to five and that kind of drove me nuts. But I really enjoy having like, you know, if I'm working full time, it's three twelves a week at the hospital. And so the rest of the time I can train, um, three twelves a week is a lot cause it's a lot of time on feet. And the, you know, it's certainly challenging to get enough hydration and nutrition those type on those days sometimes. But, um, I find for me, I'm usually working two days a week at the hospital and I'm home. So it's not, too bad and that is doable and once you're there you're just sort of there you know like and sometimes i run before the training block i'm in right now with my coach we've got it worked out so i don't so that's kind of nice but it's also not really a recovery day either you know so i kind of have to remember that but totally was that area um hit pretty hard by covid actually not really you know i was we were pretty lucky um we so we're a pretty small rural hospital um and in fact like in 2020 in the spring i just didn't work for a couple of months because there were no patients you know we didn't have any scheduled surgeries we did have a few covid patients but it wasn't like we were inundated by any means you know we, it was certainly worrisome only because we just didn't nobody knew right what was going on and um there was some, you know, scare of like, are they going to take all of our ventilators to send down to New York City? Are they going to, you know, mandate us to go work in other places? Things like that, you know, which never really happened. But a lot of that stuff was talked about. Um, but no, I feel very fortunate to be where I am. Yeah. What did you do regard. on the uh, running front during that time when there were like, no um, races? Yeah. It's, so you really kind of find out like what running means to you during that time, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and I think I fell back on, it was sort of, uh, my therapy and my way of, you know, reconnecting with who I was. I just kind of ran from home. I live, um, on a rail trail basically. And so I, yeah, was just enjoying like finding those little nooks and crannies in my, the little parts of Saranac Lake. There's all these like small little dirt trails that connect between roads and little ski areas and things. And so I just really enjoyed like finding all of those and like knowing them in a really kind of intimate way, you know, cause that's all I could do. So I found that really exciting and nice to connect with my 
immediate environment on a like almost a higher level, you know, because that's all I had to worry about. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think moving forward, you've definitely gotten more into running just outside of like racing competitively. And I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about some of the extracurriculars you're doing for the sport, um, mm-hmm. starting with your history as like a race director, because mm-hmm. I, I don't think people really appreciate um, that position enough. <laughs> uh, it, is it, it sounds so really, really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, and I actually started doing a long time ago. So when I was doing environmental education, I actually did start a small um, kind of like weekly run, like fun run series at the um, center where I was working in Paul Smith. And actually they resurrected that and they are doing them again in the summers, which is super fun. Um, plus a little race series that I also had helped start out there. And so that was my first introduction to everything that is race directing. And there is a lot of behind the scenes, you know, like in, and I have a very, um, like, I don't know, like risk adverse mindset, I guess, when it comes to those things, like, okay, what's the insurance going to cost and what's that like for this type of thing? Um, you know, you have to mark the course for anyone and everyone, like people that maybe only look up or down or, you know, like there's, you just cut the trail off with tape completely. Do you put flags? You know, there's lots of different ways you can do things. And then, um, thinking about like the community in general and like, why are you doing an event um, at all, you know, and what is it providing and what's it providing for me? Right. Like uh, why am I doing this? And the last, um, so now I race direct for um, white face mountain races. We were the U S mountain running champs uh, in 2022. And uh, um, like I had to weed whack the entire course uh, in the week prior (laughs) on white face mountain. And so I probably spent like, 15 plus hours uh on the course just weed whacking (laughs) like that was just weed whacking not including really trail marking it and uh like all the other things that i was doing that week as well but um yeah so it's a there's a lot of different hats (laughs) that a race director wears how long is uh that race so in the past, it used to be part of the U.S. Skyrunning Series when that right. was a thing. Um, and so we had a 15-mile event and uh, a short one, which I can't remember exactly at this point, and a VK as well. But then there was like a middle distance. And then uh, in the last couple of years, we decided to kind of appeal to being the U.S. Mountain Running Championship. Um, we would shorten the race down. And now it is just one loop of the mountain that's about six and I think it was six and a half miles last year with like 3,500 feet of climbing or something. Um, and it's like serious mountain running. It's, um, I think it surprised a lot of people last year, uh, which is another thing that you have to think about as a race director, like, you know, is this safe for people? (laughs) Do people know what they're getting into? Like, you know, yeah, it's it's like, how do you market this to reflect like the experience, you know, without like misleading people? Yeah. And, you know, I think, because it was U.S. Mountain Running Championships last year, we did receive a lot of people through USATF that didn't expect it to be as challenging as it was, to be totally honest. And when they got there, they were like, oh, okay, yeah, this is actual mountain. Like, this is, I'm literally hiking up the mountain, you know, for miles. So it, I think we do an okay job. Maybe we can do a better job of like, calling it you know like being somehow like it's like um i don't know the georgia death race right like they try to scare you but maybe that's i've never i never got the opportunity to do that race but maybe it's true (laughs) i don't know you know um or some of those other races like the you know those things the idea of trying to put on a 250 mile race like after hearing that perspective is just mind-boggling to me just even like marking the course right yeah that is a great point like i i would assume they have a huge field of volunteers well and here's another point actually that i would like to bring up too like so we're a very small crew it's like me my friend ian golden who um owns red newt racing is that was the original race director and he still is so it's him and i at this point but he's putting on um the marathon championships this coming weekend at breakneck that's his race as well um but you know it's just him and i and then there's a small crew of volunteers um but you know, like I would love to be able to pay people to come and help me do this. Like, I think that should be a paid position, you know, to come and help Mark trail. Um, and that's a whole conversation, I guess, about like trail running in the U S and, um, 
is it a uh like right it's been community based and volunteer based and a lot of people putting a lot of love into these things um and should it be something that is more commercial or not you know and so like i think yeah if i'm if somebody's going to give me several hours of their time um and they should be paid for that to be honest <laughs> but um and that's hard because it's you know i'm not we're not making any money by putting on these races <laughs> yeah races seldom do <laughs> yeah so it, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a whole conversation in itself, I guess. But do you have any idea of like how they like operate that in Europe at all? Is it more commercial over there? That's a great question. I don't know. Like, I think they still are depending on volunteers. That's a great question. I don't know. Something uh, we can look into. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we should look into that. But I think in general, it's probably still a lot of volunteer based when it comes to trail running that could be different when you look at a race like Sierra's and all, I wonder what they do, you know, like, right. Do they have a paid company that's coming in to just mark trail or is that something coming in the future? Right. Like, are there going to be contractors that are just trail markers? (laughs) Yeah. Did you see that, uh, the golden trail world series just got their golden trail series just got a TV deal over in Europe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Because like, if you look at like professional sports, that's where all of their like most of their funding comes from is like TV rights. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that like at least a niche in our, you know, trail running sport, uh, getting that influx of money like has to be good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, maybe this is this is an interesting thing, right? Like, yeah. Are there going to be people that are like a Vipa, but it's just for trail marking or like just for... I mean, I guess you could already say like there's agents and people out there who are probably approaching sponsorship, you know, like, I mean, that's all been Ian and I, right. Up until this point, but I, you know, there's people that if we had somebody to do that type of work, we would say, okay, like you need to approach these brands to try to get some spot. But also there's another conversation, like, should right. it be based on sponsorship dollars? No, I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think as the sport continues to grow, like that'll, sort itself out like one way or another hopefully for the positive mm-hmm. um but kind of switching gears a little bit uh relatedly uh i know you've done quite a bit of work for itra over the years and i'm mm-hmm. wondering if you can kind of first describe what itra is not to be confused with <laughs> atra uh yeah. and your role there sure so um itra the international trail running association um started in 2013 and it was a group of race directors basically um including michelle politi who is the um utmb ceo him and his wife um but it was just michelle that is part of itra um the other core group there are some that are still involved in itra that were there for the start of it um, michelle politi is no longer part of itra um and I'm not really, to be honest, totally part of it anymore. Um, it just has become a, it, I find that I get more out of putting things into my local community at this point. Um, which is, you know, I was happy to be a part of it while I was, but in general, I think most people in the U S don't have a good grasp of what ITRA was doing or really what they were. I think a lot of folks, including myself up until um, five years ago, really just saw it as the scoring system to help me get into races like UTMB. And it is used by, was used even at that point by other races besides UTMB for their scoring system, actually. Um, And so you could say, this was my ITRA score and as an elite, you know, get into other races. And I think that is kind of an interesting useful thing for a tool, right. For up and coming athletes. Um, it also provided, that's how I think I first got insurance to compete in UTMB was through ITRA and they're still doing that, I think. And that's actually my current insurance carrier that, um, I have for international racing. I got through ITRA. Um, but I think their mission originally was to create an organization where, or create a, um, bank of information for race directors and others to go to, to say, okay, what is trail running? How do I put on a race? How do we make it safe for everyone? And how do we kind of create a common platform for people so that we don't lose some of the core values that are trail running, right? Like, like the community, like um, nature, right. And the environment. Um, And so over the years, They've always had the um, drive to try to make an Olympic sport. Um, that's been one of their missions too, is to include 
world athletics and they have been huge in that conversation and the upcoming, you know, the world championships and creating this now um, more concise version for people, you know, and I was, yeah, I would say eight, nine years ago, when you're thinking about, you know, trying to be an athlete and like, where do you go? Like we don't have an Olympic team for trail running. Right. And that would be like the pinnacle. And especially coming from someplace like Lake Placid, where I see these other athletes um, striving to join an Olympic team. uh, There wasn't really a a path laid out for that in trail running. Um, And I remember how confusing it was, right. There's so many different world championships out there. And so joining ITRA was part of, as an, as I was one of the elite athletes, they have two elite athlete positions on their steering committee. And um, that was important to me to try to make it a more concise option for people. And so, and ITRA has been working on that since the beginning, basically of creating one world championship so now it is a world mountain running association an international ultra running association and itra and world athletic backed combination world championship <laughs> which is huge right to like get all those players together and agree to come together for the betterment of the sport i think in general you know that's hard that's hard work um and so itra has been really instrumental in having a lot of conversations with sebco about what is trail running? How do we make this work for everyone? And can you please back us so that we seem legitimate? <laughs> let's face it, right? Like you need to have that. Um, so, you know, ITRA today, you can go on their website, you can find lots of information. Like if you were in, you know, South America and you want to put on a race, like you can go into ITRA and there's all sorts of info about how to plan a race safely. Um, you know, part of it was also creating like a contract where people that our race directors who are part of ITRA are supposed to be doing these things. And so, but there's nobody policing that, right? Like we're not a government body that's going out, like ITRA is not a government body going out and policing different things. But at the same time, you hope people are just good people and doing the right thing. Um, but yeah, I guess that's in a <laughs> no, <laughs> kind of was... long-winded answer what ITRA is all about. <laughs> totally. That made sense. And I think it gives us a nice segue into talking about like the World Mountain Running Champs um the first iteration of like i guess like the new form was held in in thailand last year Mm -hmm. Uh, what were your impressions of of that um yeah i think it went great um you know it had it was postponed a couple of years because of covid um and so now it'll be a biannual um is that the right word every two year championship i think so i don't (laughs) think that means twice a year yeah that's what my i get them like confused that's where my brain went for a second um so it's every two years (laughs) there will be a world championship underneath this umbrella of world athletics um and so the only reason that it's back to back you know last year and this year is because of covid because of covid but um and because I, i think thailand was restricting you know like they were restricting events and things like that so they pushed it back which um I think it was wonderful. And talking to team members from last year, they found it was a great event. Um, I think it's very noticeable, like the coverage and the like excitement in the United States anyway about it was much different last year than in years past. Um, I think if you talk to anybody about, you know, being on the US team from like 10 years ago, they would say the same thing too, you know. Um, I think there was a lot more following last year and this year too. And the excitement of joining a world's team, I think, is much higher. Um and I think, you know, I guess I would credit that to being backed by World Athletics as well. You know, I think and having that concise um format of all those groups coming together. Yeah. It's also nice to see that like at least the US team was represented by like almost unequivocally like the top names in our sport. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because because in the past, I, I think because of the scheduling conflicts or, you know, um, other appealing events, the team might have been like slightly diluted or just, you know, it it wasn't yeah. like a reflection of, of the U.S.'s talent, whereas I think that's changing. And I think that's super important. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, go ahead. That's a good point. I think that, um, you know, and that starts with like, yeah, where do you put your time, right? As an athlete too. And like, where do the brands within the sport want you also, which is really interesting. I was talking to somebody else recently about this and how, you know, Nike has the stronghold on USATF, right? So um, going to Austria, like I will be wearing Nike gear. I won't be wearing my North Face apparel. I'll be able to wear the shoes. 
you know, and luckily Northeast, you know, they're fine. They're okay with that. You know, they'd rather have me there representing um, the U S but I think they're in the years past, there have been some brands who don't want their athletes going to represent their countries because they can't wear their apparel. Um, and so then they'd rather have them go to their own, you know, right. like, like the golden trail series. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's an interesting conversation too. <laughs> right. Um, well, we buried the lead. So you're on the U.S. long <laughs> right. distance team this year after you finished third place at Lake Sonoma. I'm um, wondering if you can kind of take me through the training block leading up to Lake Sonoma and uh, your excitement about going to Innsbruck. Sure. Um, so I, the first time I applied for the U.S. long trail team was in 2017, actually via resume. Um, and it, for me, it was not you know, like a huge goal. It was a goal, right? And something that would have been really amazing and exciting. Like we were just saying, though, it was sort of not a uh, like bucket list item for for me at that point. Um, and so this year at the end of 2022, I had a really kind of difficult personal time. I was in a really like mentally very difficult place. Uh, I was in a relationship that ended. I was like, pretty lost uh, with who I was kind of as an individual and a human and really took some time to reflect on how I wanted to proceed and what did that mean? And so by December of last year, I had decided that I, my, I did want to make it a goal and a priority to make the U S team. Um, I turned 38 in December. And so it's, you know, biologically at some point, like I can train harder, but I'm not going to get any faster. <laughs> and so I figured if I was going to do it, it was probably going to be this year. And so I like doubled down on, you know, setting that goal. And then how do I go about it? Right? What is the path to achieve this? And so one of those things was um, starting with a new cl coach. So uh, Chloe Lanthier is my coach. She's based out of Chamonix, uh, but from Montreal originally. And so her and I started working together at the end of January because I actually went through a period in January where I didn't run because I had uh, a bacterial overgrowth called H. pylori. <laughs> I had a really terrible end of beginning of the year, but, um, and so, yeah, at the end of January, we kind of, uh, we're like, all right, we're just going to do the best we can with about 10 weeks worth of training, um, to get myself ready. And, by the end of that 10 weeks, like I, before Lake Sonoma, I was like already so elated that I had achieved the goal of like being true to training and like putting that time in and doing the work, um, that I was like already I've won, you know, like I already felt amazing. Um, you know, cause I think in years past, like when I think about running and trail running and I wasn't as serious about it. And I think part of that was to like protect my ego or, you know, things like that. Right. And so I wasn't putting all my, I've never put all my eggs in one basket, but I wasn't putting as much priority on it probably to protect myself. And so now like already at rock bottom, I was like, heck, like <laughs> what? I'm just going to go for it. You know? And I, I found so much confidence in myself and drive from doing that, that I yeah felt, amazing. And that definitely, I think, allowed me to like, achieve a new level of fitness that I haven't had in the past. Um, which, yeah, got me on the US team. <laughs> yeah. Did that kind of correspond with um, you joining the North Face? So I um, had been talking to the North Face last year a little bit. Um, so, you know, things were already kind of in the works. But um, yeah, I joined the North Face for the first time in January and signed an official contract. It was like, a, like a, amazing, right? Super like cool. this, uh, like relationship is like I never thought possible, right? Like when I think back to little Sarah, like beginner trail runner, and and I don't know why. Like I remember meeting like Stevie Kramer, right, and like those sorts of people and Casey Edmund and stuff, and like being like, oh my god amazing you know yeah <laughs> and now like this is amazing <laughs> now <laughs> like, you're that to other people well and which i think is which is like it is amazing like thanks you for saying that but i think also like being uh keeping the underdog mentality and mm -hmm. but and so feeling like i am still the underdog like on this north face team right like there's some amazing individuals here that i get to like share zoom calls with and um yeah. So certainly going to Lake Sonoma, uh, 
was a little nerve wracking in that way. And then it was my first event as a North Face athlete and with the team, you know, yeah. it wasn't a, re- wasn't a required event to be there for the team, but she, it was highly encouraged to be there. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I will say that it was, in, it was just everything I could have hoped for and more, you know, I felt really, really supported my crew members, uh, out on the course were my teammates, Brittany and Caitlin. And, um, at that night when we were just all like hanging out and celebrating, they like got us a me and, um, Tara joined the team this year too. And so they got us a cake and like read our names on it. It was just like, couldn't have asked for anything more than that. It was really amazing. Yeah. Was it kind of your first time meeting a lot of those people in person? It was. Yeah. And some of, some of them I've known. Um, but yeah, most of those folks, it was my first time getting to meet them. So it was great. Yeah. Do you kind of train mostly alone, uh, when you're home? Yeah, I do. Um, and I find, it's kind of necessary, I guess, with this new training structure that I have, to be totally honest, I have had some opportunities, you know, with friends or people that have been like, Hey, yeah, let's go run. And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> I really just need to focus, yeah. um, you know, to get in a little bit to like my training and how it's been since January. It's, um, it's a lot of really hard work. You know, it's a lot of focused workouts actually. And it's, there's not a lot of like just free run time. Uh, it's a lot of, um, different, uh, like gear, like working in different gears, but in an intentional way and really focusing on how my body feels and what those different paces are like. And so, you know, in the past, again, I think like I wasn't taking it that seriously. And so going out was like, I I don't know, like, I don't want to call myself lazy, but like it just going out for fun and like just running along and really not paying attention to what, I was doing, you know? And so now when I think back on some of those times, I'm like, man, that was a waste of time, but no, it's not, you know? (laughs) And so now I find I do have to kind of run alone just to focus, um, on, on that stuff for sure. Have you found that you have like needed another outlet then? Cause in the past, if you were using like running as like something like fun, like a stress reliever, like it sounds like it's not like that for you anymore. So I'm wondering if you've like shifted, (laughs) shifted that to something else. Yeah, I will say I have um, really dove deep into pastry making. Oh, those, those activities complement one another. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I love it. Uh, I put in a new kitchen, actually. So I my house that I live in here that I own in Saranac Lake is built in 1910. And I put a new kitchen in last year. So I've but I've owned it for going on, I guess, 11 or 12 years now. And so, of course, it's only half remodeled. You know, when I first yeah. moved in here, I was like, it'll take me a couple of years. It'll be done. No, no. I mean, there's a lot to do here still. But finally put in a new kitchen where I actually have an oven that I can control the temperature and like, you know, it all works. And I have kit- like counter space that I can roll things out on. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of my outlet now has gone into baking pastries like croissants and Danishes. Yeah, what are you even making? <laughs> um, making me hungry. Yeah. So my, like the most proud I am is of this Danish pastry, um, with like a homemade custard and marzipan in it. Uh, lovely. I will say though, the most recent thing I tried to make was an Austrian donut, like because of Austria. <laughs> and, right. um, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible disaster. <laughs> <laughs> just left with like a ball of kind of like fried dough, essentially, I'm sure. Yeah, I just threw it all out because it was so bad. Uh, and I will try again. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't win them all. So. Yeah, as long as it's still edible. You know? it w- oh, no, it wasn't edible. Oh, at all. No, okay. I had to throw it out, which is a waste of, re- like a, of supplies, I guess. But I was laughing hysterically because I it's kind of like a like it's the oldest donut, I think, in the world, to be honest. Like there's some recipes dating back to like the ninth century of this donut um, from like that region of Europe. And it's basically just a jelly donut. But um I was trying to fill it with Nutella. And so they ended up just sing, just looking like buttholes oh, <laughs> with man. Nutella and they tasted like poo too. So I was like, this is just hilarious. So I just <laughs> threw them all out. <laughs> oh man. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Austria, not to completely <laughs> shift topics. Uh, have you raced internationally a ton? Uh, I wouldn't say a ton, but I've done some racing. Um, you know, I've been there for UTMB and um, attempted UTMB the full one once and didn't finish it. So that's a goal on the list to get back to. Um, and then I've raced in uh, Spain. I have raced where else? I guess in Asia, but um, 
I think yes, you might have brought up, you might have brought up something I wanted to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Which was the uh, the race you did in Bhutan last year. Mm, uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so um, the snowman race. Yeah. That's its real name. Yeah. And it's actually, race, yeah. the real name of the trail is just snowman trek. Um, and so yeah. there are folks that will go to Bhutan just to kind of hike this with a guide typically. Um, but the race was the, uh, like brain child of the King. So it's a Royal system over there. And so the King had come up with this race called the snowman event, uh, to highlight climate change in his country. And so it's an invitational event. Basically, I do think they'll probably hold it again. It'll probably be every two years or something like that. But, um, it was a five stage stage race basically. And, you know, they call it the hardest race in the world. I guess it's all relative about what you think is hard. I think, certainly that altitude and that those type of conditions makes it the most tough race I've ever attempted. Certainly. I don't think I've ever seen those conditions anywhere and never will again. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever be at 17,000 feet trying to run again, but um, yeah, it's an, an incredible country. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, an amazing experience. Yeah. Oh man. I, who else was I talking to that has done it? Did Byron Powell do that? Yeah. So he was there as, um, kind of media coverage. I think he was kind of cued in pretty early on when they came up with this idea, him and Megan Hicks. And so he ended up being each night, like each stop, they call it a night halt, which I really like. So every camp is called a night halt. And so he was night halt one, um, like the U S like each night halt had a U.S. member, like a team member there who could speak English well and like kind of coordinate things for the athletes and that sort of stuff. And so Brian was at night halt one. Um, and so he arrived there, you know, days before us and stayed there for days after when we all went on as well. Um, but yeah, that w- it was a, and Megan actually just recently published an article and I run far about the race um, and highlighting kind of the women that were competing from Bhutan, which was very cool experience to race alongside them. Um, yeah. It, I mean, if you have the opportunity to go to Bhutan ever, I would highly recommend, okay. <laughs> highly recommend it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess for the rest of this year, your main focus is going to be on Innsbruck in Austria, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it's not far away. It's, uh, today is May, what, third. So it's only like five weeks away. I forgot how (laughs) how close it is. Yeah. Jeez. And like someone was saying like Western States is like, I think. Yeah. So that's only like seven weeks away. away. Yeah. Just crazy. Um, yeah. So right now I'm in like big training, you know, for that, but you know, and to be honest, like my training is hard, but it's also like not huge volume. Um, but it, and I think I said in an email to you, like all I had to do today was go running, but it, uh, in, around running is getting ready for it and then recovering from it, right. <laughs> which also takes a lot of time. And so that is something I've incorporated in my training this uh, season heavily is the recovery aspect, but also, and then getting ready to run, like making sure I've got an, you know, enough nutrition in me and like have eaten beforehand and I'm hydrated. And then I'm also like doing some mobility and stretching and a little bit of strengthening to activate muscle groups that maybe I'm feeling, you know, when I'm running. Um, but yeah, so after Innsbruck, you know, and my coach and I talked about this, that, you know, I want to focus on one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am signed up for Valderan in the Pyrenees, um, the hundred K there. And so we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is, you know, I want to be back at UTMB this year as well, you know, at one of the events. And so I will see how I feel. We'll see how I recover. It's only four weeks post uh, Innsbruck, the Valderan. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to see how I feel after that. But what, what does recovery look like for you? Um, so like this time around after Lake Sonoma, I took... I mean, I did, I started running pretty quickly, actually, I would say I had, well, only really, I took a, I did a bike ride, like the day I got back here, I took a red eye back Sunday night, (laughs) got here Monday and like went for a bike ride. But then I think Wednesday I ran just light low, you know, so recovery is very light, you know, kind of relaxed, not concentrating on training heavily. Um, I did a little baking, of course. (laughs) And kind of just hung out with friends and um, took some time just to like, yeah, 
yeah. separate from the running scene a little bit. Did you escape Sonoma uh, without any poison oak? No, I did end up with a little. Yeah, oh, and I always it gets everyone every year. I'm telling you. Yeah, I mean, I we we all like so we all were staying in a um, the North Face team was staying at a house, and so we didn't. None of us had any um, tech new, but we did use just like there's a huge thing of Dawn dish soap, so we all shared. <laughs> yep, and yep. that helped. But I did end up. Uh, I think I still actually have like because I'm super sensitive my skin, and um, I think I still have like some little bit of scarring, you know, like or just discomfort in uh like around my right knee from some poison oak yeah i'm a currently month, month co- on. covered in it and it's just uh, <laughs> it's the worst yeah oh man <laughs> okay uh before i get you out of here uh i'm just curious what is something that you've been like super into recently that like it can be running related but just general general life um well i mean for me you know to be totally honest like mental health has been huge um, and actually before this call, I just got off a call, um, with a therapist that's provided by the North face, which is something incredible that I didn't realize was available to me as a resource until just recently. Um, and I hope other teams are doing this. Like this is, I don't even know how to describe it. It's really like, just makes me feel like, uh, like, thank goodness, right. That people are looking at the mental and physical side of, um, athlete health and hope I'm really hoping other types of other brands and teams are doing this too. But, um, so yeah, that's been my big thing, you know, and like trying to, um, over the last several months, you know, check in with myself and make sure I'm staying grounded. Cause I, like I said, I had a hard end of 2022, but did come out of it like a better human, I think. And so I want to keep that going. (laughs) Totally. No, I mean, you make a really good point. Like, I think, athletes mental health is something that is often overlooked because you know they're expected to be incredibly resilient um as athletes and you know oftentimes like people discount how much pressure they're under constantly to perform and um that's really cool that the north face does that i didn't know that yeah i didn't either until just recently and i um i do think it's um, like really valuable you know and maybe i'm like putting things secrets out there but (laughs) but i think like yeah, if your athletes are like happy in their headspace, like it's only going to come out, you know, as a hopefully better performance, right? Um, friends of mine, actually, um, Ryan Atkins and Lindsay, Lindsay Webster, they're huge in the OCR world, um, have been big proponents of like using a therapist for a long time in an athletic, you know, way. But I mean, we're, you know, as athletes, you're not immune to just the normal stuff of life, right? Too. Right. So it's, um, yeah, I think it's it's pretty awesome. Really cool. Well, Sarah, I'll let you get back to uh, to baking, um, but this has been really fun. <laughs> thanks for chatting yeah. with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Sarah for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.